If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. That should be no surprise as we continue our series in the Ten Commandments. I'm actually going to be reading out of that, for all five, four words that I'm going to read for our scripture reading today, I'm going to read out of the King James Version. So if anybody asks you, does your pastor preach out of the King James Version, now you don't have to lie, you can say yes. (laughs) You just don't have to tell them how many times. I'll say why. Chapter 20, looking at verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we move from uh, to the second tablet of commandments, as it's popularly known, uh, commandment number six. And we do, uh, as you can tell, move to the exceedingly practical um, in life as we look at social relationships. But I don't like the division that a lot of scholars and people like to hype. It's all connected. How you relate to God is directly related to how you're going to relate to your neighbor. Um, and how you relate to your neighbor is directly related to how you relate to God. As we're going to see today, we're really talking about very spiritual matters today as we look at thou shalt not kill. But I need to put a disclaimer on this uh, sermon. Um, You think this would be the easiest, most straightforward one to preach? We could be out of here in five minutes. But if you've ever spent time really thinking about these issues, uh, you know it's uh, complicated in our world today. Um, This commandment, these four short words, it's actually two words in the Hebrew, and we'll talk about that. They touch at the heart of some of even our society in our world today's most pressing and controversial and difficult issues between gun violence, abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, climate change, warfare. I believe this commandment speaks to the heart of all of those issues. Um, And I believe we have to think about it in those issues as people of God. Um, And so I will be talking about this. I will be uh, saying some things that uh, may be challenging to you. Um, And I hope you'll take that with a a term of grace as we wrestle with this. I also want to put a disclaimer, though, on on everything I'm saying. I don't want you to try to decode it uh, into our political system today. I don't want you trying to say, oh, I know who he votes for then if he says that. Um, I don't believe any party gets this right. I don't think there's any safe ground other than the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not here to perpetrate a political party or a political system. I'm here to call people into repentance into the kingdom of God. I am here to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to present Jesus Christ to people. Um, And so I believe on all these issues, Jesus speaks into them, and we will have convictions, uh, but I don't think this is anything anybody can get Christians by the arm and strong arm say, well, we got you in a corner because of this issue. Um, I think that's a wrong, a wrong way. Uh, and so uh, you may have a, a personal preference uh, you feel convicted about. I'm happy for you to do that. I believe in the fullness and a lot of these issues that uh, this is where us Protestants get it right, I think, in that it is Wesley was very committed to the personal conscious and conviction 
uh, that we each have to come to. And I want to say that. Uh, but I will be saying some things that challenge you. I hope you take it with a grain of salt. I, think, I hope you know me well enough that I am not heavy-handed, uh, that I, will, I believe that as a holiness preacher, I, I need to say things to challenge you. I believe if you're following Jesus, you're going to get challenged. And so don't come to church and expect to hear a holiness message that tickles your ears and makes you feel good all the time. Uh, I expect you to come to church, hear something, struggle with it, and have to go home and pray about it for a while. And you may, not come, you may not come to me and say, I agree with you fully, and we're okay with that. You hear me? But I do believe to preach the gospel, I need to preach things that are unsettling, that challenge our assumptions, and call us in deeper relationship. And then when it comes down to where exactly it falls, you may come to a different place than me. Because the reality is, in a lot of these issues, there are faithful, Bible-believing, Christ-following Faithful Christians that do come down different places on this, and we need to acknowledge that, all right? And take a big dose of humility. I'm going to talk about that. But I do believe that this presses, this commandment needs to press on us. Um, so that's kind of my disclaimer. Uh, big dollop of grace and humility as we try to really struggle with what God's commandments mean for us. And we're continue to follow our formulas. We turn to what it looks like in Israel. It's funny. Sometimes we struggle with what did this mean for Israel. Today, I, I can tell you, I'm a lot more confident in what it meant for Israel. And I could talk about it all day long as we look at it. And then as we bring it into modern life, yeah, it'll get a little more sticky. Uh, so as we look at Israel, it's actually two words in the Hebrew. And uh, I want to just talk about the translation really quick. I know that's everybody's favorite part of the sermon, but it's important here. Um, there's a reason I use the King James Version because I think that's a little bit more faithful. I think most of our translations in here, the NIV and NRSV, uh, probably says, thou shalt not murder. Um, I, when you look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew word, it is painfully generic. It is painfully broad. It's actually not used that often. It's only used 46 times in the entire uh, Old Testament. And there's other words that are much more specific to murder um, or warfare or anything. This word used in the Hebrew, don't ask me to pronounce it for you. I know what it is. Um, it's very broad. And so I think the, most, uh, the easiest translation we can come to is you shall not kill um, because it's, it's very broad. There, there's other terms uh, for rightful killing. There's other terms for murder. And so uh, it's difficult. But it's not unknowable. We're going to see the way we can come to an understanding of what we're talking about, I think, through is really going back to the beginning and looking at the story. Um, and if you read the story of humanity through the lens of the Sixth Commandment, I think it becomes abundantly clear. So, and I think story kind of tells it better than us. In the beginning, there was Adam and Eve, right? If we're going back to the very beginning. Um, we're not going to talk about Adam and Eve too much, but we will say in the garden, it was clear that they were not even killing animals. They were vegetarians in the, in the garden. Um, there was no bloodshed whatsoever in God's perfect creation, um, that we were surviving off vegetation. And, um, you know, they started having kids. Uh, the first sin, well, the first sin was eating the apple, but that was really what opened the, that was kind of our decision to say, we're going to go our own way. The first concrete sin was what? Murder. Cain killed Abel. That should set off the trajectory for us right there. That the first actual concrete sin against another was murder. Um, 
But it didn't stop there. They started having kids. And we see in Genesis chapter 4, they start having kids. And one of the one names that jumps out at me always is Methuselah. Because my dad always said, oh, he's older than Methuselah. You know, if you grew up in the church, you heard that. And Methuselah is in that long list of names. Um, and Methuselah had a son named, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, Lamech, Lamach, however you want to say it. You can go back 3,000 years and ask them. Uh, <laughs> Lamech. And uh, Lamech was the dad of Noah. We've heard of Noah, right? That's where we're going. But Lamech was the son of Methuselah. And actually, Lamech, though, wasn't just another name in the list. He actually got a speaking part. Um, Because we know Cain. Cain killed Abel. And Cain, uh, God protected Cain, though, and said, you know, anybody that kills you is going to be repaid seven times. But Lamech comes around, and he he brings his two wives over. It's a weird speaking part uh, in Genesis Uh, chapter 5, and uh, he basically says, he brings his two wives together, and he says this. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. It's almost a poem. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged Sevenfold, truly Lamech is avenged 77-fold. Remember that number, 77. We're going to come back to it. Basically, Lamech is saying that, you think Cain was a bad dude? Look at me. Basically, the Hebrew says that young man he killed, I killed him for brushing against me. Anybody that touches me, they're going to get repaid 77 times. What we find out was at the earliest time, not even Cain and Abel, but those first generations were full of sin. What was the sin? Violence, murder, revenge. Lamech is saying, nobody better best with me. I'm one bad dude. You look at me the wrong way, I'll kill you. In ancient cultures, a lot of times, it was the blood vengeance they would talk about. So if someone killed a member of your family, you would go kill one of those, but it also didn't stop there. You would get vengeance and kill more. And that's what this is really saying, that Lamech was kind of voicing the era of the times that we would just keep killing in vengeance. And listen to what Genesis chapter 6, though, says about Lamech's time and the generations before Noah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. The height of human sin was a violence that was destroying the world. Sounds like some of our fears today, a violence that would destroy the world now that we had the capability to with warfare. But it was in the time of Noah. God regretted making humankind. Why? Because of our violence, because of our murder. If we ever want to talk about what's going to undo society, what's going to undo this world, it's clear according to the Bible, it will be violence and murder and the killing of one another. 
And so God, uh, as you know the story, maybe they're talking about it back there with the kids. You know, it's one of our favorite children's story. Uh, Noah gathers the animals into the ark. Uh, Noah was pleasing in God's sight and said, you know, I'm going to save you and your family. Not, notice, not his father, Lamech. He's off the boat. Um, and uh, so they, they gather everybody, they save them, and Noah gets off the boat. And here's why I'm, this is all murder and violence, uh, applying the commandment. But here's really how we can come to the understanding of the Hebrew idea of thou shalt not kill. Noah gets off the boat, and here's what God tells him, directly related to what was happening. He basically says, okay, now I'm going to give you the animals to eat. Before Noah, they weren't allowed to kill animals. Animals were not within the right to, for humans to eat. Um, they were living a vegetarian environment. That's maybe why Methuselah lived as long as he did, because <laughs> they weren't eating any red meat. And some of us can say, amen. Um, the doctor's telling me the same thing. Um, but they get off the boat, and, and God says, you can kill animals now. You can shed their blood. But what you're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to eat the meat with the blood in it. And actually, if you look at your Bible in Genesis chapter, it says that the life in it. You're not allowed to eat the meat with the life in it. The ancient understanding was that the blood was what carried life. And that's actually a pretty good understanding. Without blood, you're not going to have life. The blood was what carried the life. And so what God was saying with that, he wasn't just trying to pick on them. What God was saying is that the, the life, the life blood, that's not yours. That's mine. You're not allowed to consume that. You're not allowed to touch that. I am the dispenser of life. The blood is mine, it is not yours. And then God tells uh, Noah this in verse 5. For your own lifeblood, now he's speaking to Noah and the hum humans, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I re will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human, that person's blood should be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. Do you hear it? God was basically saying that in every human there is an unimaginable worth, as we've already talked about, because we are made, every one of us, in God's image. And he's basically saying to humanity, you don't get the power to decide life or death. Only I have that power. So what God was saying, in some sense, this is actually a stopgap. If you, someone sheds the blood of another then you have to take their life because they did so wrongly. They have transgressed the commandment of shedding blood. This was also a stopgap to say that you don't get to go destroy their whole family. You don't get to destroy. It is only a one-for-one. One. This is actually stopping Lamech from getting 77 times revenge. So there's, there's a wholeness there that's stopping vengeance. But also we should see that this, even more so than Genesis chapter 1, presses on to the commandment six is every human is made in God's image. They are God's. He has given us life so there's unimaginable worth. So how dare we try to take up the power to kill or to take life? It was never ours 
to have in the first place. Um, so we see that in the power of Noah. And for the Jewish people, Genesis chapter 9 there in, in that conversation with Noah would have been the understanding of life. You might say, but, but pastor, there's a whole lot of killing in the Old Testament. If you ever read the Old Testament, there's a lot of warfare. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, before we get there, though, let me also say what God just told Noah. We have to realize this is a very ancient society. They didn't have any prisons. They're nomadic people entering the promised land. They didn't have somewhere, oh, you just broke the law. We're going to lock you up here in the safekeeping, and we, we can stop you from doing that. They couldn't do that. Every punishment by ancient society had to be immediate. Either we had to be able to whip you or make you pay a fine or a retribution you know, for your crime, or they had to kill this is the Wild West where there was no option to lock people up. And so um, we got to keep that in mind as we look at the law. Okay, what about, Pastor, what about all of the law that says, here's how you kill, uh, you know, murderers and different things like this, and, and uh, what about all the warfare that we see in the Bible? Well, the distinction is, the very important distinction in understanding the Sixth Commandment it's not about defining the word kill, because I believe that it is a very generic word. The distinction here is you shall not kill. Do you hear it? God is God. God is the giver and provider of life, the creator of all. We are made in his image, and God alone holds the power to kill. The commandment is you shall not kill. And so what we see in the Old Testament, every act of rightful killing always, always was a direct command from God. And we may be troubled reading the law, and we, we should be as Christians. We, we see a lot of murder. But we have to understand that that was the only way they were able to kill someone to punish them the commandments. If anyone went outside of the law, they would have been transgressing the sixth commandment because the law itself was God's direct command to the people of Israel. Are you tracking with me? This is a very important distinction. And you might say, look at the warfare. The warfare, warfare it was never the king's or the judge's decision to go to the war. They always had to check with God to know if they were allowed to go out to war. So it is a gross misinterpretation of the Bible to say, see, they fought in Israel's time, so we can go fight whenever we want to in modern times. It does not equate because they always checked, and that's what we see is we've been looking at the Bible study on Wednesday nights. They had to roll the Urim and Thurim to see if God's favor was upon them. And there was always a distinction when Israel went to war that it was never about what they were doing. It was never about their strength. It was never about how big the military. In fact, God kept on whittling the military down. Sometimes they just walked around the Jericho seven times because dare Israel ever believe that it was within their power to take human life. They had to depend fully on God. So don't ever let anybody, you stop them in their tracks. They say, well, have you read the Old Testament? Say, brother, you better heard command from God because that's what they were doing the power to kill the power to take life and to give life is only ever God's and yes sometimes 
God instructs humans and did in the past to have to take that life. But the Bible is always clear that you better be operating under a direct command of God or your life and your soul are hanging in the balance. And if it, some of us are already thinking, we see the problems in modern times, people killing in the name of God. There's Muslim extremists that are killing in the name of God. And so before you run out there and say, God's speaking to me to go kill all these people, you better look to Jesus Christ, and we're going to in a second. But this, the distinction stands for the Old Testament and the commandment number six that it was only in a direct command from God. God alone holds that power. You and I don't. Um, that's what it meant for Israel. Whew, that's, that's the easy stuff right there. I could talk about that all day. What does this protect us from? Um, you might say, oh boy, this protects my neighbor from coming over and killing me because my hedges are too high, and you'd be right. But the answer is, this commandment really protects us from ourselves. Desmond is eating a lot these days. It's uh, actually disturbing the amount of food he can intake in such a small body. Um, I mean, solid food. We, we blend most of it up, but this week we made a meatloaf, and uh, we blended that meatloaf up with some veggies. It did not look appeasing. It tasted pretty good. Um, but man, I mean, he, can, uh, 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 he ate like a thing that big, that straight. I'm like, how big is your stomach? It can't be any bigger than that. I get worried. I stop him sometimes. He's still asking for it. I said, no, I don't want to feed you that. But I've noticed when I've been feeding him lately, I'll have the jar or whatever it is, and I'll be spooning. And he's very interested in the spoon, the amount of food. You know what he's more interested in? The bowl, the jar. He sees that's where it is. That's the good stuff. And I mean, he does. If I'm not watching, he reaches out, grabs it, and tries to pull it towards himself. I could, I could use this illustration on a sermon on greed, but I'm using it here. He knows that's the stuff of life. He knows that's the power of food, and he wants it for himself. You know, you know what would happen if I let him have it. He'd take that jar, he'd wave it around, spread the whole room, you know, spray it all over himself, and he wouldn't get a drop to eat. He'd waste it on himself. It's like humanity with the power to kill. We see God giving and taking life, giving life to us, but we see that power and we want it for ourselves. We reach out and we want to grab the power of life and death. But if we did and when we do, we make a mess of it. When we get that jar of life, we destroy life. All we have to do is look at the time of Noah, Cain and Abel, and Lamech, and look through our own history and see those who claim the power of life and death destroy life itself. Why? Because it was never, we were never created to have the power of life and death. That has always been God's. And when we get our hands on it, we ruin it. We destroy life. We are God's image in the world. We are to represent God. But just like commandment, uh, 
when we're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, we didn't have the power to use God's name to curse, we're also not allowed to have the power to take life as God does. We would destroy life. So this commandment really saves us from ourselves. Because otherwise, we would destroy the world. And we wouldn't even be standing here if God hadn't stepped in in Noah's generation. They would have killed everyone. I mean, 77 times revenge, the world and humanity dies pretty quickly with that, if you do the math. It's an endless cycle. Okay, so that's what it saves us from. Uh, thank God for this commandment that it really um, is a check. Let me say one more thing about that. Don't doubt when it saves us from that. I, I want us as holiness people, never doubt the lust and humanity for violence and death. Don't ever doubt that we have an addiction in our fallen state to violence. Um, it is clear throughout Scripture and it is clear in our society today. Um, we, we should not take that for granted. We should be very careful with that. I, my dad was always very careful with the movies we watched. He was just as concerned with sexuality as he was with violence in movies. Um, I, one of my earliest kind of thinking about this, I was watching National Geographic, and there was two walruses. This is weird. I would, this is not my notes, but I think it applies. Two walruses fighting, and they were bloodying each other up. My dad walked by the television, and he said, that's so sad. I said, what do you mean, Dad? He said, there's the sinfulness of creation right there, that they're fighting one another to the death. Violence and death have infected all of creation, even in the animal systems as we shed blood. So I want us to be aware. I want us to be on guard as we look out into the world that violence is a scourge upon humanity and it is against God's purposes. And we should not dabble in it. We should not be comfortable with it in any way, shape, or form. All right, let me go on because if you think you're being challenged now or I'm being challenged, I got to this point. We have to go to Jesus. And if you already aren't comfortable with what the scripture says about killing, you may want to leave now because Jesus doesn't make it any easier. If you're looking for an excuse, I, uh, I kind of, I call it, yeah, but when, you won't find it in the Gospels. Um, Jesus takes up the commandments. And I think as we look at the story of Jesus, though, before I even get to what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, we have to realize that Jesus our Savior, creator of all, was executed by humans. That God came in the flesh and we murdered him unjustly. And we did so in the name of God. Um, if that doesn't convince you of humanity's addiction to violence and murder, I don't know what will. Um, that when we got our chance to get our hands on God, we killed him. And yet, as we look in Matthew chapter 5, we see how Christ handles the sixth commandment. Um, I will say this, as we look at the scripture and we see Jesus, what we believe as Christians is that Jesus is the fullness, the revelation of God. And when we hear the words of Jesus, we are hearing a God himself. And so we also believe that on Mount Sinai and the law given to Israel was temporary 
It was good. We can see God's will in it, but it was not the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And we can see stopgaps. And that's what Jesus is basically saying. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. That was good for a time, and that was a stopgap, but here is the true intention of God for you, and that's what we're going to see. And commandment number six is the perfect illustration for this. Chapter five in Matthew, uh, verse uh, 21, we're going to read some of this. I'm running out of time. I'm going to let the word of Jesus convince us, but I am going to say a few things about this. Um, You have heard it said in those ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus takes the good commandment of the Old Testament and he deepens the issue. He doesn't give you excuses or yeah, but whens. He actually says, if you're just worried about killing someone, you need to go way deeper than that. What God is truly concerned about is who you are inside of your heart and your soul. Your intentions That if you are being consumed with anger, yeah, you may never be killing anyone, but you are sinning just as much. That if you're consumed with hate for someone, if if you're being controlled by contempt, and that's what you fool, it's not about there's some magic power in the words you fool. What he's saying there is, is if you treat anyone with contempt, that's what we do when we insult people. We're basically writing them off with contempt. If you have contempt for another human being, you might as well be transgressing the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus takes the commandment and he really ups the ante. He deepens the issue to realize it is a spiritual problem that is not just about external responses. It is about a transformation of what's going on in here. That if we are struggling with anger, we are struggling with contempt or hatred. We are fully in sin. Uh, we, we are transgressing the commandment. Um, I think that should be challenging to us all as we look into our own hearts. If, if there's not something that is condemnation on our, our modern society and the anger we see everywhere and the contempt for our neighbors, for the contempt of people who disagree with us. Yeah, no one may be murdering people, but for us as Christians, be on your guard. Guard your hearts. As Jesus says, we'll be liable to the same judgment if we are filled with that anger. He even says it in this. In fact, don't even come to church. I'm not going to say that. 
But that's the, that's the extent of it. Don't even come worship me thinking you're okay if you've got a problem with your brother and sister. That's how deep this issue goes. Yeah, you may not have killed them, but if you've got a major problem with them, if you're not reconciled with them, don't come in here and act like everything's okay because it's not. Do you see how this is all connected to our relationship with God? God's saying, you work it out with your brother before you come work it out with me. And then I'll come forgive you. But it is directly reconciled. I can't, uh, these are all sermons in themselves, but they have to touch. Um, he, he isn't done here. L- listen to this, because this directly replies to commandment number six. You have heard it also said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Really quickly, I want to explain a little bit about that. But I think many of us need to hear the command of Jesus. You've heard an eye for an eye, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer, period. I know that's going to be hard to live out, but I just want to hear the command of Jesus before we get to the yeah buts, right? Um, the, the turn your other tree I've talked about a little bit really quickly. That's not just, oh, I got to turn into a doormat and let everybody walk over me. We've talked about the, the cheek, right? So if someone strikes you on one tree, can you turn the other? That was pretty loud. That's good. I like that. Um, if you turn the other, you're, you're causing them to treat you like an equal, and you'd be, it'd be insulting to them. So you're, you're nonviolently resisting. You're bringing shame on them. Uh, the cloak and the coat as well, they take your coat. You're standing in court, give them your uh, cloak also. Basically, the translation is a little rough. You'd at least be standing there in your underwear, you, or you may very well be naked. And basically, it is an embarrassment to that person that is trying to take your only way to sleep and stay warm at night. You're saying, here, take it all, and I'll stand here naked. It's exposing what they are doing, and it is embarrassing them. The go another mile, I know this is bullet points. Hang with me. I'm trying to get it all out. God's laid it on my heart. Listen fast. Um, Go another mile. In Roman times, in Roman occupation, a Roman soldier could come to you and make you carry his pack for a mile. The law said that. He was not allowed to make you carry it for any more than a mile. If he made you carry it for more than a mile, he could get in trouble and be prosecuted. So Jesus says, if those Romans make you carry their pack for a mile, go the extra mile. Kill them with kindness almost, right? Jesus is not saying you got to lay down and be a doormat and let everyone walk over you. He's saying you resist, but don't you dare take up the power of violence and death. The best word we have for it is non-violent resistance. It is the third way of Jesus. An eye for an eye eventually makes the whole world blind. I want to pause here and say, no, actually, I want to, I'll read one more thing of Jesus. You can't get enough of the Gospels, right? You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. It's our favorite commandment. And hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you hear that? I'm happy for you to love your family. I really am. But don't expect you're getting a big reward in heaven for loving your family. Jesus says even the tax collectors do that. Even the sinners do that. The most evil people in the world love those who love themselves, right? Jesus says to be my people, to be the people of your Father in heaven, you have to love your enemies. Why am I talking about this? Because the, 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 what we have said, even as sometimes Christians is like, well, they're our enemies. We need to kill them. They're against us. We need to take their life, right? Jesus says to be the people of God, you have to love them and pray for them. Again, I know this gets hard living it out in the real world, but we are holiness people. We do not say these are nice ideals that we should strive for. We say these are the commands that we have to live out. Amen? Amen? We are God's holy people. Jesus goes on to say, after saying these things, he knows they're very difficult, and he says, therefore, be perfect. I can talk about the translation, not time, I won't. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy as God is holy. Do you hear it, friends? I want to stop right here, because if you're really listening, this should be very challenging for each and every one of us. But if you're not, died in the wool Nazarene, if you're not a holiness if you haven't been sanctified, you might be saying, Pastor, that is unrealistic. I can't live in today's world and live by the commands of Jesus anymore. That's an ancient society. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm here to tell you, friend, you can't. You can't follow these commands. You try to, you'll fail. Trust me, many of us have tried and failed. That is our message, actually. We can't be good enough. We can't save ourselves. You try, you'll feel, you'll get frustrated, and sin will gobble you up like a gummy bear. Lamech is waiting around the corner for you, right? This is what we say. And you may already be a Christian. You may have uh, confessed your sins. You may know Jesus. But until you come to the point where you give up trying, where you give up on yourself, when you say, I can't do it in my own power, we talk about this in terms of recovery as well. First step of AA. I am powerless over my addiction. And one of our chief addictions is violence right. and death to sin. You can't love your enemy on your own power. You have to have a transformation of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have to give everything over to God and the Holy Spirit can come into your life and transform you and make you a new creation. We call that the work of sanctification. Yes. Have you had that encounter in your life? If you haven't, you can have it today and you can have it every day for the following. But until you come to that point, Jesus' commands will just be ideals that you'll keep failing to hit. But once we give full control to the Holy Spirit, and it's not rocket science, you basically say, God, I'm done trying. Sorry, I've messed up so many times. I want you to take full control, send the Holy Spirit, form me and shape me into the image of Christ. That's all you need to say. And say it every day. Live into it every day. It's for all of us. It's not something you say once every 30 years, friends. You need to live that way. Give your life over to the power of the Holy Spirit every 
day. Because we're not a people to say once saved, always saved, once sanctified, always sanctified. We're not all moving into, you know, nudist camps, are we? Right? That's a joke. You can laugh. Naked people. <laughs> we still wear clothes. Why? Because sin is still there crouching at our door. And the sin of violence is waiting for us. We have to live as if and we are in recovery every day from sin, trusting in the power of God and the Holy Spirit. I usually I leave that to the end, but I felt like I just needed to say it because you read the words of Jesus and they need to challenge us. And we can't think that they're just ideals, all right? All right. That's the easy stuff. I'm serious. I've been... When you're a preacher, sometimes you love the sermon, but you dread preaching it. I'm not going to... I'm not going to do hard and fast rules on all, how this, like I said, personal conviction, but I am going to present some ideas to us. I just want to wrestle with, it, with. I do know we live in the real world. I'm not trying to be idealistic, but I'm a holiness preacher, and this is what you're going to get. Um, you shall not kill. I really believe if you want the safest route for your life and your soul, I believe that the closest reflection of Jesus Christ in the world in just very practical matters, um, the safest option, if you say, Pastor, how can I know, is to be a pacifist. That you make a commitment in your life that you'll never take someone's life, no matter what. That is the safest option. Um, and there are Christians in the Christian tradition that have believed that and still do believe that. You may say, yeah, yeah, pass, pass, pass. And I hear you. I hear you. But if you want to know the safest option, if you want to know that I will never be tempted, I will never struggle with taking a life unjustly on my own terms, then you have to make a commitment never to take a life. That is the safest option. That is the path. Can you ever, if we want to talk about Christ-like terms, can you ever imagine Jesus killing someone on his earthly life? The one chance he really had when Peter said, oh, here's our time. Let's take out our swords and defend Jesus. Cut off a man's ear, and what did Jesus do? He healed him. So if you want to talk about Christ's likeness in its fullest, pacifism has to enter the conversation in some ways, okay? Um, I know that has not been always, it's not been within our tradition. It has been an option within the Church of the Nazarene, um, but it's not. So I'm, hear me, I'm not trying to lay it down. It has to enter the conversation. Here's... I, the Christian evangelical pacifist argument is this. I, I can't kill a fellow Christian. I can't kill a member of the body of Christ. And if someone's not a part of the body of Christ, then I, I can't kill them because killing them, I believe I'm sending them to hell. That they're not ready to meet their maker. That I as a Christian should be more ready to send myself to heaven than to send them to hell. That's the Christian pacifist argument. And it actually, it's, it's a pretty effective argument. Also, pacifism, I just, again, um, it's not just laying down. It's not weakness. It's not cowardice. Um, have you ever seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? If not, I would recommend it. It is rated R. It does have violence. It is a war movie, so have guidance about that. But it is not glorifying of violence in any way. It is the story of Desmond Doss. In fact, I can't wait to tell my son Desmond about him. Uh, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. 
And he was raised to obey the commandments very strictly. He had an encounter as a child where he hurt his brother uh, and his mother said, you know, you could have killed him. Uh, and he had an encounter with the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and he lived his life by that. Uh, he was a young man when the World War II broke out, uh, but he was still very committed to enlisting. And he enlisted as a conscientious, conscientious objector uh, and wanted to be an unarmed medic in the field, Desmond Doss. Um, he, he endured much scorn. In fact, he was locked up for a time for his, uh, he did not want to carry a weapon. Um, and finally, he did get to serve on the battlefield in the Battle of Okinawa. Um, it was on the uh, part of the Hacksaw Ridge, and uh, he was the medic. It was a very violent, horrible battle where uh, they were having to scale a cliff, if you can imagine, and the, and the Germans were waiting on the cliff. And they were climbing the cliff, and they were getting, what's that? Japanese. Japanese. Did I say Germans? Yeah, Japanese. Um, the Japanese were waiting in bunkers. Climbing the cliff, they were getting slaughtered. In fact, the day was going so poorly that his uh, group um, retreated. But Desmond stayed up there. In fact, all night, he worked to save the wounded. I can't express to you in terms, he was by himself lowering full men down the cliff to save their lives by himself. That night alone, he saved 75 lives by himself. He is the only conscientious objector to receive the Medal of Honor. Um, he suffered wounds. He took a sniper bullet in his arm. Um, he carried the wounds. And they had a video interview. He has died in 2006, but he, he carried an interview, um, and he was talking about that night, and he said, every night, every time I saved a man, lowered him down, I just prayed, Lord, give me one more. I don't tell that story to make anybody that has served in armed combat feel bad in any way, shape, or form. But I just, I tell that story to say that if we feel convicted that it's not cowardice. It's not being a doormat, right? That there is honor and valor to sticking to our ideals. I, I'm not preaching pacifism is the only way. Don't hear me say that. And again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. But I also, at times, we have looked down on people who have held to that. I say that is a faithful response to Jesus Christ as well. So if we're not going to be pacifists, and I don't hold myself to be a strict pacifist, um, how are we to live this out, though? What does this look like in our lives? I think on the medical side, I, think it's, I, think, I do think it's pretty some straightforward that I think abortion is off the table for Christians. Um, I, I don't see how you can take that, those matters in your own hands as a Christian. Um, I also don't believe that your Christian duty is uh, just voting about the object. Your Christian duty is to get involved in people's lives that may be struggling with the decision. Uh, our Christian duty is to support single mothers who would be struggling with that. The church's duty is to, 
to enhance foster care and adoption um, and to get involved in life. That's a pro-life stance. Uh, so, and I think equally so, euthanasia is off the table. Um, we have medical, we can help people get through pain, we can help them get through struggling. Uh, that should never enter in our conversation. Uh, God's timing both in birth and death are for God to decide, and that's the power of life and death that is only God's. Um, and if you want more specifics on what we believe as Nazarenes, it's in our manual. I won't go through all of our statements. Uh, but I do believe that this commandment, if, if, we, if I am not going to take the total pacifist route, um, I do believe even still this commandment must press back on us at every turn and make us question and examine what we are doing and how we do it. And I, believe, and I know some of these are societal questions, but we need to take both the commandment number six and Jesus' commands very seriously in everything that we do. And I think that is why, going back to the translation, it's such a broad word for, used for kill, because it is a stopgap to humans' addiction to violence. Uh, I, would, I would question, again, I'm just saying some challenging things I want us to think about. Just like Jesus' commands about wealth made me question how nice of a car I buy, they really do. I, my car I just bought, it seems a little nicer than I would like, but it does have 160,000 miles on it, so that was part of the conversation, right? I, I do think that commandment number six does need to at least enter the conversation in our gun culture in this country. I understand many of us have, uh, you know, like to go hunting. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about legislation. I'm, but I think it needs to enter the conversation. I mean, if there was a commandment not to play golf, Martha, see, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> but if there's a commandment not to play golf, but I had a nice big set of golf clubs in my garage. I mean, we, we just, guns are tools to kill. And we have a commandment, thou shalt not kill. I know it's not as straightforward as that, but all I'm saying is that this enters the conversation, at least somewhat, and, and restricts our idea of how we embrace the tools of violence and death in this world. Maybe not for people who aren't holiness, right? But for holiness people that are living out the kingdom of God, I think it enters the conversation. I'm not saying, you're, hear me. enters the conversation. Um, and if you say, yeah, Andrew, it does enter the conversation. I thought about it. I'm keeping my gun. That's fine. Uh, that's your personal conviction. But at least you've thought about it, prayed about it, thought about ways that you're going to use it or have it or different things or, you know, tout it. But let me tell you, we hold to the kingdom of God and the commands of Jesus. And whatever the laws of this country are, whether it be abortion, whether it be guns, about anything, you don't answer to the Constitution when you go stand before Jesus Christ, do you? You stand before Jesus. He is judge of all. So that's better be what you're wrestling with. That's all I'm saying, right? Um, okay. I told you the earlier stuff was easier stuff. Let me close. I know I'm going, I'm sorry. I wrestled with this. this is the, you think this is the easiest commandment, but you know... This is difficult stuff, and I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that there's faithful Christians that believe what I believe about contraception to be a sin. And so I think we just need to have a dose of humility, friends, can we? 
that we will disagree where we land perfectly on this. But if we are struggling, wrestling with the commands of Christ, allowing the Spirit to lead us, that is what these commands are for. Let me close with this. That dude Lamech, he must have been a, a bad mamma jamma. Anybody that brushed against him, looked at him crossways, kill him. Vengeance, 77 times. Peter uh, came to Jesus one time. I think somebody was brushing against him. And uh, he said, Jesus, how many times do I got to forgive this person? Maybe seven times? Jesus said 77 times. Any Jew would have understood what he was saying. They knew the story of Lamech. That what we are really about as Christians, we aren't just obeying a law. What we are about is the healing and the undoing of sin in the world. That we're not just saying, what can we not do? What we are saying is, how do we heal the legacy of Lamech is that we forgive and we love and we reconcile. That is the work we are called to do. Those are the weapons that we have been trusted with. And if you believe in the cross of Jesus Christ, you believe those are the most powerful weapons in the world. Thou shalt not kill. What weapons are you taking up? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we allow your spirit to speak to us, we pray that uh, we would hear, we would listen, we would be faithful to wrestle that we would be faithful to follow Christ above all else, that we would love you above all else. Speak to us now in this time of communion and, and prayer. Make Christ available to us. In your name we pray, amen. I know, friends, we're overtired, but I'd still just ask for us not to leave out of here in a hurry. Give 10 minutes to God right now. I hope you can spare it. Allow God just to speak to you. Wrestle with you. But also in this time of communion, as we enter a time of prayer, and you can sit in your seat and pray. You can pray at an altar. If you haven't been sanctified, if you haven't given it all to God, now's a great time. Come at an altar and pray about it. God can transform you. What we believe at the table of our Lord is his sustaining grace for us, that we have to stay connected to Christ to be able to follow him. And don't miss it this morning. There is life in the blood. There is life in the blood. And Jesus says, this is my blood shed for you. This is how we have life, that God has poured out his own blood for us. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion. All that we ask you make a decision to follow Jesus. Receive the bread, receive the cup, receive the life of Christ. And go out and serve him. As our servers come down, on the night our Lord is betrayed, he took bread, and having broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat whenever you do in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood 
shed for you. Take, drink, whenever you do, in remembrance of me. Friends, when you are ready, come receive the grace of Christ in your life. Let us continue in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of life. It is only by your choice, only by your love, only by your grace that we stand here today by your gift to us. And so I pray that as your holy people, as your children, that we would always be honoring of that gift and that we would never transgress it, that we would never be tempted to take it unjustly, Lord, but that we would follow Jesus Christ in his fullness that we would be your holy people that lead others to realize the beautiful gift of life and that it is holy and precious and that we are made in your image. No matter who we are, where we are, at what age we are, we are yours. Every human being is yours. So let us go with that awareness, Lord. Let us treat others as we treat you, Heavenly Father, and as we have been treated by you. Would you sanctify us as your people? If there's anyone holding out here in this congregation right now, Lord, we pray that they would release it all over to you. Anybody that is struggling, anybody that is still trying it on their own power, would we give ourselves over to you and be sanctified holy? And may we, as your holy people, depend on your grace every day to live out your commands. We love you, Heavenly Father, and we want to follow you with the best of our ability. And I trust that those in this church want to do that and they are doing that to their fullest. Help us, Lord. Be with our church ministries. Uh, continue to bless them. Bless the uh, recovery meetings that meet here on a weekly basis. Free people from the bondage of addiction. Be with our food pantry, Lord, as we feed our hungry brothers and sisters. The, the preschool, Lord, we need more teachers. Uh, provide for that ministry. Help us to plant the seeds of faith. Be with us tonight as we gather around another table uh, with hamburgers and hot dogs. Lord, may your grace and your presence be present. May we show the love of Christ and may people be drawn to you through our love and our gift of hospitality. And Lord, for those who in our lives are struggling with anger, who are struggling with rage, contempt, may we be faithful to show them another way. For those who are struggling with physical illness, Lord, and waiting a diagnosis, we pray that your healing touch would be upon them. We lift up Kathy Horvath to you. We lift up Rose Miller to you, uh, Lord, as she's struggling. We lift up uh, Kathy Hutchinson as she's recovering from surgery and Vince Flauto and the many others who are carrying burdens of chronic pain or difficulty in their body. We know your strength is enough for us. May we rely on you. For those who are struggling emotionally, for those that are battling fear or anxiety or depression, may we turn that over to you. May we allow your spirit to speak to us. May we get the help that we need. And may we know that you care about our whole being, body, mind, and soul. For our, our families that struggle with reconciliation, with division, with difficulty, would your spirit of peace invade our families, bind us up. May we be faithful to carry out the ministry of reconciliation.
Lord, we lift up our local and our state and our national leaders, Lord. Give them wisdom and grace to carry out their duties. May we treat other people and other nations rightly and justly. And may we promote peace and justice wherever we can. Lord, we lift up our church. Greg Mason, the state of North Carolina and the church globally, Lord. May we be your different people to represent the way of Jesus Christ in the world and may people find salvation and sanctification in your church. May all people know your peace and your power. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Help us to pray as you taught us, saying together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Church family, would you stand with me? You have been given the gift of life, but through Jesus Christ, you have been given the power of life, new life, eternal life. So may you grab hold of that power and may you share that power of new life with everyone you meet this week. That is a power far greater than death.